Hello and welcome. You're listening to The Final Word on CJRU 1280 AM in Toronto. It's July 7th. I'm your host, Gabriela Silva-Ponte. Today, we'll be covering stories from the new Threads feature on Instagram, to an art show about pandemic dogs, to a film based on Toronto's Thorncliffe Park. But first, let's take a look at today's top news. Instagram's new Threads seems to be taking over the internet, but what is it really? Meta launched the Twitter competitor on Wednesday. CTV News reports 10 million users signed up for the app within seven hours of its launch. Threads was the top free app on the App Store by Thursday morning. It is thought that Threads could replace Twitter. Twitter has faced backlash since October 2022, when Elon Musk bought the social media platform. Recently, it added a feature that limits how much daily content users can view, which has garnered its own backlash. Users can post 500-character limit posts to threads and interact with each other's posts. Threads also allows users to post their threads to their Instagram stories. Like Instagram, thread accounts can either be public or private, and verified Instagram users will be automatically verified on threads. Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg said in a Threads post, The vision for Threads is to create an option and friendly public space for conversation. We hope to take what Instagram does best and create a new experience around text, ideas, and discussing what's on your mind. Users will have the same handle as their Instagram, but may customize their bio. Threads also allows you to import your following list from Instagram. Threads is available on iOS and Android in 100 countries and over 30 languages. Zuckerberg said in his thread post, It'll take some time, but I think there should be a public conversations app with 1 billion plus people on it. Twitter has had the opportunity to do this, but hasn't nailed it. Hopefully, we will. Lester B. Pearson International Airport will be installing the nation's sixth public hydrogen refueling station. CBC News reports the station will be capable of refueling cars and transport trucks. Carlson Energy is the owner and is expected to build and operate the station. Carlson and the Greater Toronto Airport authorities announced in a news release Thursday that the project will be built by a $1 million investment from Natural Resources Canada. Carlson President Jason Van Giel said, With a significant share of Canada's emissions coming from the transportation sector in Ontario, it's imperative that we start deploying hydrogen infrastructure in transportation corridors. CBC reports hydrogen is generally extracted from sources like water and methane, but is a clean burning fuel that does not produce greenhouse gases or atmospheric pollutants. The GTAA said the station is part of Pearson Airport's commitment to clean and efficient energy solutions. A report card is showing that Toronto's transit was the least reliable transportation system in 2022 out of all the municipalities in the region. CBC reports the score came from frequent and basic services, reliability, 24-hour service, transit priority, service improvement, and integration with neighboring transit systems. Mississauga tied with Toronto's score of 69%, equivalent to a letter B grade. According to the report, Toronto's score was attributed to congestion issues and frequent diversions due to construction. 
The report also noted that the recent transit cuts had not been accounted for, but, quote, would negatively affect grading. The report card recommends more funding and integration to keep up with population growth and operating costs. It also suggests expanding express bus services, adding more streetcar routes, addressing safety issues on the Toronto Transit Commission, and integrating fares with Go Transit. CBC reports Toronto's mayor-elect Olivia Chow responded to this with, quote, a long sigh when asked about it in an unrelated media availability Wednesday. She added she would find a way to reverse the recent service cuts to the TTC. She said, I will find the financial means to do so. Trust me. One of Canada's largest mountain biking festivals is coming to Ontario for the first time. Crankworks Summer Series Canada began yesterday at Barry's Horseshoe Resort. It includes a series of competitions where expert riders show off their tricks and a variety of trails where beginners can practice. The Summer Series program began in 2020 in the hopes of helping Canadian athletes grow. CBC reports it is modeled after the Crankworks World Tour that takes place annually in Australia, Austria, New Zealand and Whistler, B.C. Project manager of Crankworks Summer Series Canada, Christopher Coppitz, said Ontario has a rich history producing some of the actual best slope-style athletes, just with smaller hills. He added, that has some of them focusing their efforts more toward the trick and slope-style discipline. Horseshoe Resort told CBC it built three courses for the main events, including an air downhill track for large jumps, a dual slalom course, and a track where riders race head-to-head. There is also expected to be a slope-style course where athletes perform tricks in front of judges. Horseshoe Resort's general manager, Jonathan Reed, said the resort expects the festival will attract 5,000 people. He said, having these numbers of people coming out to the property, they all stop in local communities and spend money and whatnot, and it's great for local employment as well. Ontario's largest children's treatment center is ending services offered through its fee-for-service autism programs. Arano Kids Center for Treatment and Development said an insufficient amount of staff and high costs is the cause for this. According to CBC, Arano Kids services more than 20,000 children and youth with disabilities each year. The many advocates and parents who are struggling to find support for their children say the center has an obligation to provide core clinical services for children with autism with its state-of-the-art facilities. Core clinical services is one of the streams for support for children registered in the Ontario Autism Program. These services can include applied behavior analysis, speech-language pathology, and occupational therapy. Erin Kids said in a statement that it is not required to provide free autism programs. The center said, The decision to end fee-for-service was a difficult one, made because we could not recover the costs associated with delivering this service, and we could not hire sufficient staff to offer this service consistently and reliably. The center said it will continue to honor the paid-for and already scheduled appointments until September. The statement read, Children with autism will continue to receive high-quality evidence-based clinical support through the programs Aaron Oak Kids is funded to provide, including diagnostic assessment, entry to school, caregiver-mediated early years programming, and urgent response services. 
CBC reports the Ministry of Children, Community and Social Services said it provided over $112 million in funding to Arano Kids. But Arano Kids said the fee-for-service offerings are not funded, but rather paid for by the families. The ministry said in a statement, The needs-based Ontario Autism Program is changing the way many autism services are delivered. As more funding is going directly to families for core clinical services, the sector is adapting to offer a broader range of flexible and individualized services in an open market. It added that the government invested $660 million in the Ontario Autism Program. The New Democratic Party blamed this cut on a government that is, quote, more interested in helping themselves and their insider friends than real people in Ontario. NDP MPP Monique Taylor said in a statement, Premier Doug Ford's Conservatives created this mess with their underinvestment in publicly funded autism programs, which help treatment centers like Arano Kids deliver both clinical support as well as fee-for-service supports. She added, This government needs to get their funding for these critical programs out the door and fix their broken funding model for autism services in Ontario. Former president of the Ontario Autism Coalition, Laura Kirby McIntosh, said these services are the core of the Ontario Autism Program. She said, I'm shocked and disappointed. The quality of the services they provided in the past has been very admirable, and it's something parents have sought. Meanwhile, this Toronto Metropolitan University alumna is showcasing an art show in the heart of the city. Michelle Leon Huizman has been making art pieces related to the pandemic since it started. Now, her pandemic dog art show entitled CMYK9 is showing at Silver Shack Gallery. The gallery is located at 1681 Dundas Street West. The show has been on since June 1st and will continue until July 15th. It is free. Here's what Michelle had to say about that. Uh, so during the pandemic, we had got a puppy right before the pandemic. And um, I ended up meeting a lot of people, you know, obviously from a safe distance uh, that had dogs at the time. And I met people who already had pets and I had a lot of people that I met who had uh, who had gotten pets during the pandemic, uh, especially dogs. And, you know, I, it, for pets in general, I feel that, um, you know, they help to alleviate stress and anxiety. And, you know, if people were home by themselves, they had a companion. And I think that all of those things were important during the pandemic to at least have um, a companion when you, you know, especially during that time frame. And so with the CMY, uh, CMYK9 show, I wanted to actually show try and show something that was a bit happier a happier time for uh for what was going on and so i think that the cmyk9 comes out and it brings out the happiness because it's so colorful and so um yeah and so they're it's very different from my first two projects that are more they, they have some color, but they don't have as much color as the dogs do. And 
And so, yeah, so I think that in that particular sense, it's it's supposed to kind of, it's the trilogy of the three projects and it, uh, and it was supposed to end on a happy note. She described her overall experience with art. Uh, actually, I started in high school. I had a really good art teacher and he actually uh, encouraged me to focus more on photography because I had a love for it even in high school. So I did a lot of the yearbook photos and that sort of thing. And then, um, and then, and then when I went to high school, there was grade 13 and he actually let me, uh, make a program just for photography, um, based on, on the fine art, uh, grade 13 curriculum, but I geared it towards photography. So I've always had an interest in photography, even back as a teenager. So I went to Toronto Metropolitan University and graduated in 1996. And from there, I went actually up to the Yukon and I became a whitewater rafting guide and was a photographer on the river and then came to Vancouver and ended up uh, eventually in the film industry as a set decorator and from there went into interior design and then when the pandemic hit um, I ended up coming back full circle to photography. I had done some professional photography before that but um, I focused more on the art aspect of it when the pandemic hit and um, I would say that basically uh, I've used my university degree through all of that, uh, all of the um, the photography that I've worked in or design aspect of it, and I'm very happy to be back in the fine art area of the arts. And Huizman went into detail about the type of art she produces. Starting even in university, I I was always interested in the more alternative processing and so with the past three projects that I've done I've worked with a a technique called 19th century printing and it's a tricolor gum bicromate and the first two projects were done over palladium this one is mainly done with a black pigment Basically, they are hand-painted photographs, and each layer is uh, another color. So you start with, there's four negatives, and then you end up using the black as your first negative, and you paint on your black, and then you you expose it to a UV machine, um, and then you uh, rinse off what... Uh, it's, a, it's kind of a hard uh, a hard uh, thing to explain <laughs> on the radio um, but it's uh, basically you whatever is burned into the paper from the UV machine will stick to the paper and then you rinse it off in the water and then you let it hang to dry and then you end up putting on your next layer which in this case is yellow and then you use a yellow negative and you go through the same process. And so you do this four or five times. I usually do 
the show right now has at least five layers of color on top of it. Some of them have six layers. And uh, there's a woman in the States that does eight or nine layers on some of her work. So it just depends. You can stop basically when you think the photo is done. CMYK9 is the third in a series about the pandemic. Uh, Well, I I would like to continue with the 19th century technique, and I have learned it over the past three, two years, three years, um, uh, with a gentleman named Bob Carney, who's actually showcasing uh, the work right now in Toronto. And um, I would like to continue with that technique, but I would say that... I like the, the dogs, the CMYK9 show, which is in Toronto right now, um, because it's so colorful and it's so different than the last two series that I've done. So I do like the dogs for that particular reason. Uh, I like the my Global Pandemic, which was my second series, uh, simply because it does look at the way I've... Uh, the way I showcased it was with um, discarded masks with the environment. And I, I do like that because it, it kind of brings up a lot of conversation about the environment and how we've dealt with uh, all the waste during the pandemic. And the first one probably was kind of my baby <laughs> uh, because um it started out with broken wooden spoons from the 7 p.m. cheer, and I ended up collecting 32 of them. And they, it, for that particular uh, series, I really, really, it just resonated as an artist for me. In that, um, to me, it was it was very uh, it was a very powerful series, and hopefully. Uh, a bit of a thank you to first responders, first responders for helping so much in the pandemic. And I know that people were cheering for um, for the first responders. And now, when I bring up that time frame, uh, a lot of people forget. And so I like that I produced a reminder for that particular uh, time frame of the pandemic. She ended with a piece of advice for young artists. Keep going, try, and uh, I, I always look at it as, as taking baby steps. So sometimes things can feel overwhelming and you don't feel like you, you can get very, very far. But if you just do a little bit at a time... Um, you will see your progress and you look back in a few months and think, oh, wow, uh, I did all that already. So even if it's 10 minutes here or half an hour there, that sort of thing, it, it really does add up. Um, but yeah, it's hard. It's the hardest thing to do is take the first step. But uh, I just suggest a baby step, a little step at a time. You can follow Michelle's journey on her Instagram at M-I-C-H dot L-L-E Leone. And 
Antoine Bourges's concrete valley is showing at this year's Tiff Bell Lightbox from July 21st to the 29th. Bourges described what the movie is about. Uh, concrete Valley, it's, uh, it's a domestic drama. It's a film about a relationship between a man and a woman uh, who live in this neighborhood called Thorncliffe Park in uh, East Toronto. Uh, it's a neighborhood that's uh, also referred to as a, an arrival city. It's a, uh, a kind of landing spot for new immigrants who arrive in Canada. So currently there's a lot of people that come from South Asia and a lot of people from uh, the Middle East. So uh, this couple in particular, they're initially from Syria. And um, I think I was really fascinated by this neighborhood itself, the, the dichotomy between the buildings, these kind of big modernist high rises, um, uh, in um, in contrast to the the Don Valley, like the greenery of the the forest that surrounds it, uh, and I felt that there was something quite unique about how uh, it was actually quite a beautiful neighborhood from the outside, but it also feels like it it secludes people a little bit from the rest of the city, and so it I think the 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 architecture and the look of the neighborhood uh, sort of made me feel like I I wanted to make a film about this this feeling and. And making a film about a couple uh, and the, the the difficulties that a couple have in, in their relationship felt like a good match, uh, basically. So that's what the film is about. I'm happy with it. I think I'm always a little bit of a perfectionist, so I, I will always see things that bug me. But overall, I think it is a, a slightly different beast than the one I had. Uh, like, no, I wouldn't say beast, but you know, they're like a little bit of, it's, it's kind of like an animal. Like it becomes this, this thing on its, that has its own legs. Like it, it's not the thing I had in my mind, but it's something else that's also interesting and, and, and unique. So uh, I really, yeah, I really like the film for, for what it is and for what the mainly for what the performance brought that I, I could not have thought about because um, a lot of it was made with uh, a lot of the actors uh, are either non-actors or, or trained actors that uh, have not worked in English a lot and so there's a lot of surprises that happened on set and a lot of surprises that are in the in the final product and so I really I really do enjoy that. He described his experience with filmmaking. Uh, I made like a couple of little films and to be honest, they were mainly geared towards getting into a film program. Uh, I had a desire to make films, but I, I never really picked up a camera and made like, you know, small films at the age of six or whatever. Like you hear stories of filmmakers doing that. I've never done that. I, I kind of like thinking about them and maybe writing a little bit, but I've, I've only started making a few little films shortly before I joined the program, really. I went to a film program at UBC uh and uh after about uh this it was a short program it was two years and uh i started just making a few shorts um i would say a lot of the um uh, my education with filmmaking came from being in this program that was pretty loose and that allowed us to do pretty much what we wanted the program was in between was in transition so there wasn't too much teaching it was just kind of like you guys do what you want so it was a really uh, uh, opportune time, I feel, to uh, learn how to make films in this program. And then I worked for an artist who was a photography artist, uh, so not a filmmaker, but who really had uh, 
uh, a very unique approach to making uh, to making uh, photographs. And so just seeing how an artist works really, uh, um, yeah, helped me kind of understand actually what filmmaking could be and how much broader it is than what I thought and, and how uh, sometimes at school you learn certain sort of, uh, you know, formatted ways of doing things. And then when you see someone who just kind of makes it their own, you understand mm -hmm. that like, essentially I understood that uh, artists create their own methods. And so that's sort of how I came into filmmaking is, is just to try to find a method that, that works with me and the kind of personality that I have and the kind of, um, the kind of subject that I like to tackle. Actors Hussam Duna, Amani Ibrahim, and Abdullah Nadaf led the film into fruition. Borges described what it was like to work with them. Uh, it was great. It was absolutely. It was really amazing. I mean, they all, all three of them are extremely different performers, so uh, it was a really great uh, kind of exercise, actually, to work with these three actors. Um, Hussam is uh, is actually a documentary filmmaker who got interested in the project and really volunteered to be part of the project for love of the project, not for love of acting. And Hussam actually does not really like acting, and so he it was a uh, um, and so he really uh, wanted me to really help him a lot and be really present with him through every step, every scene, every take in a way that I've never been with actors. Actors typically want a little bit of freedom from directors. So it was interesting to be with someone who really wanted me to be there. Um, uh, working with Abdullah, he's, he's, he was uh, nine years old, I think, when we made the film, or 10 years old, first time working with a kid. Uh, yeah, really amazing experience uh, to just understand how to work with a, a child that, that is not an actor, that is not a trained sort of, you know, a theater kid that's just like a real kid. Like, how do you uh, produce something uh, that feels authentic with, with someone that age? So that was very interesting. And uh, Abdullah is actually a kid from Thorncliffe, and I really wanted to to feel the, the the energy of of Thorncliffe in in this couple and and I felt like Abdullah really feels like a kid from from Thorncliffe so it was really important for me to have Abdullah in the film and uh, Amani is you know probably you know one of the best actresses I've ever seen really she's like she's a real trained actress uh, and she was just extremely easy to work with so it was also nice to have. Uh, her as like an anchor in the film, someone that just could get it right the first time and also the 10th time. And um, and yeah, a nice kind of contrast with everyone else. The film is being distributed by MDFF. Borges said he enjoyed working with them. It's great. I mean, I've known these guys for years now. They produced all of my shorts. Uh, they haven't produced this one. They executive produced it and they're distributing it. Um, but uh, yeah, it's still a great relationship. And uh, I feel like they really represent the kind of cinema that I like as a viewer. It's just like as a cinephile, I like watching these kind of films. So I think that it's a good fit and it makes sense for them to uh, distribute the film and to present the film because it, yeah, the audience are, are, you know, kind of know what to expect. If, if they know MDFF, uh, the films that they present or the films they produce, they kind of, uh, they kind of know that they're in for you know, uh, you know, slightly, you know, an art house film, basically. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great relationship, and obviously they're, you know, they're these, they're really connected with Toronto, and I feel like this film in particular is a very Toronto film. 
So it was important for me to really continue the the relationship with them. Borges left a piece of advice for young filmmakers looking to get to where he is now. Uh, it's good to look to watch movies and to look to movies as an inspiration to make your own films. But often you find much more interesting uh, um, uh, inspiration in, in real life and in your own life. And often if there's something that you haven't seen on screen, uh, it doesn't mean that it's not interesting. It probably means that it is just very nuanced and complex and that people have, haven't been bothered to show it. And that's precisely what you should go for. So if your life has these elements that are kind of interesting, nuanced, specific to you and who you are or, or your family, then really dig into that more than maybe try to recreate a film that you've already seen. That's our show. You've been listening to The Final Word on CJRU 1280 AM in Toronto. I'm Gabriela Silva-Ponte. This episode was put together by myself. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you again next week.